I'll be reading uh, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 53 this morning. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's on page 475. Psalm 53. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. Every time I preach and I, I have a surge of anxiety right before the scripture is read because I have this fear that one day I will have prepared the wrong chapter. <laughs> Thankfully, today is not that day. Well, before we dive in, um, as many of you know, um, Kelsey, my wife, gave birth to our son, Eli Christopher, a few weeks ago. And I just wanted to, yeah. <laughs> Way to go, Kels. Way to go. You, you did it. Um, I just want to take the time to thank so many of you who have made meals for us, who have given us gifts, um, who have prayed for us, who have offered encouraging words, um, who have even visited us. Um, It's been helpful in the first few weeks uh, when you're stuck in the house to see some friendly faces. Um, And so we have felt the love of God's people to us over the last several weeks. And so I want to commend you for that and thank you for it. Well, in 1982, one of the all-time great films was released. And you can rack your brain to think through what were some of the all-time great films released around 1982. And you're probably thinking, well, I know Justin, which means it was probably a Star Wars film. But, uh uh-uh, that would not be right. Empire Strikes Back was 1980. The Return of the Jedi was 1983. And no, I'm not a nerd, despite what my wife thinks. And I also didn't, I did not say the greatest film of all time either. Um, no, in 1982, the third installment of the Rocky series was released, Rocky Three. Now, of course, Rocky Three brought so many great things, right? You'll remember the great song, Eye of the Tiger, not only was released um, in that movie, but was written specifically for Rocky Three. But we all know the best part of Rocky Three is Mr. T., Mr. T as Clubber Lang. And one reason I thought of this as I was preparing for this sermon is because probably one of the most iconic pop culture contributions from Mr. T in Rocky III is a very specific line. And that line is, I pity the fool. I pity the fool. Well, our text this morning, the main character is a fool. Now, when Clubber Lang was saying that about Rocky, he said Rocky was a fool because he was daring enough to get into the ring a second time with Clubber Lang, 
And Clubber knew that he was going to uh, uh, destroy Rocky, which we know ends up differently. But in his kindness and in his mercy, he had pity on Rocky uh, before the fight. But we'll see today that the fool in our text is not like Rocky. It's not someone who's dumb for uh, doing some sort of thing. It's someone who is morally deficient, someone who lives in a way that is contrary to the way God has put forward. We'll also see that God's response to that fool is different than Mr. T's response. It's not pity. So we'll see what the fool is like. Who is the fool and what is he like? We're going to see God's response to the fool and then we'll finish with God's response to the faithful. And our main point this morning is this. God rejects the fool and restores the faithful. God rejects the fool and restores the faithful. So let's start off by looking at who is the fool and what is he like. First, we'll see that the fool rejects God. And he does that in three different ways. And we see the first way in verse 1. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we see the first way the fool rejects God is by living as though there is no God. Now, often when we hear this, we're probably prone to think of um, the atheism we come in contact with in our own culture, where someone has reasoned their way into thinking that there's no way that God can exist. And although there's an element of that in this text, the focus here on the, this uh, idea of there is no God is not so much an intellectual one as it is a moral one. The fool is saying that regardless of whether or not God exists, he lives as though God does not exist. You can think of it like this. Um, it's kind of like stop signs in the city of Philadelphia. They're there, right? But no one actually drives as if they exist, right? Really, any sign in the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. I thought, um, like, when you're entering the boulevard, there should be a sign that says, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Because <laughs> that's exactly what happens. So that's the way the fool lives. He lives however he wants to live. Although he may, he may um, acknowledge that God is out there somewhere, he lives on his own terms. And that's really the theme of the fool. So everything else kind of comes under the umbrella of the fool living as though God does not exist. His rules have no implication on his life. So the fool lives as if there is no God. The fool also lacks true knowledge, and we see this in verses 2 and 4. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, God's looking down to see if there are any who understand, and then later in verse 4, have those who work evil no knowledge. See, true knowledge in the scriptures is more than just intellect. It's more than just knowing facts. True wisdom is more than just discernment. True knowledge leads to obedience, to obedience to God's law, to God's rules, to God's way. We see this in our own world. Our world is filled with really smart people. Our world is filled with very discerning people. But yet the scriptures teach us that if knowledge doesn't lead to obedience to God and trust in God, it's not true knowledge. It's fool's knowledge. So we see the fool lacks true knowledge, but the fool also fails to seek God, and we see that also in verses 2 and 4. 
the last line of verse 2 indicates that the fool doesn't seek after God. And the last line in verse 4 indicates that the fool does not call upon God. And it's interesting that that's mentioned here in the Psalms because the Psalms are full of examples of people seeking the Lord, people calling upon the Lord. And so the fool in Psalm 53 stands in stark contrast with the many other Psalms that we see in the Psalter. We see that a sign of foolishness is a refusal to seek and call upon the Lord. And this is something, as I was studying this week, is something that convicted me because I'm reminded of how quick I am to rely on my own knowledge. I'm, I'm someone who likes to think and reason my way through things. Or let's say something difficult comes up, how can I kind of figure out my way through it? But God calls us to seek him, to call out to him. When we're suffering, when we're going through difficult times, God says, come to me first. Yes, he's given us a mind so that we can reason, but God invites us to seek him. And the fool in Psalm 53 refuses to seek the Lord. So we see first the fool rejects God, but the fool also lives wickedly. His actions are against God's way. We see this happens in two different ways. First, the fool's heart is corrupt, and we see this in verses 1 and 3. The psalmist says, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. And then again in verse 3, they have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. Now, corrupt here carries the idea of something that is ruined, something that is spoiled, something that is twisted. The idea is that the, the fool, he, his heart is inwardly twisted, and so the bent of his life is towards evil desires. His heart is like the rotten apple that spoils the barrel. As he spends more time with other people that are foolish, their hearts continually grow more and more corrupt. But we also see that the fool's deeds are vile. And there's two ways that his deeds are vile. We see this in verse 1. He does abominable iniquity. That you know, like, when you hear abominable iniquity, you're like, I'm not sure what exactly that means, but it doesn't sound good. It sounds like it's pretty bad. The fool lives in rebellion against God. That's what that means. It means that um, he's not living some kind of haphazard, misguided life. He's living in absolute defiance against God. You can think of um, maybe a child. You know, sometimes children, when they disobey, they do it somewhat accidentally. You know, they're, they're still learning, um, and they're, you know, they're, you, you cut them a little bit of slack. But then there's other times where you've told a, ch- a child not to do something. They look at you, and then they do that exact thing. And that is not cool. That's, that's the picture of this abominable iniquity. The fool looks right at God and says, I'm still going to rebel. I'm still going to defy your will. So the fool does abominable iniquity, but he also oppresses God's people. And this is kind of the, the, the logical conclusion of the fool's life. We see this in verse 4. Verse 4 says, uh, the second part of it, that the fool eats up my people as they eat bread. What does that mean? What does it mean that the fool eats up my people as they eat bread? Well, the picture here is that through the fool's wickedness, he exploits and consumes God's God's people 
in both a consistent and a casual manner. And you think of in this culture, bread would be a staple of the diet, right? It's probably something you're eating at almost every meal. So what the psalmist is saying is that the fool exploits and consumes God's people the same way they eat bread each night for dinner. They don't really even think about it. It just comes natural, and they do it on a regular, consistent basis. We see this image used elsewhere in the Bible to convey this same idea. In another place, it's, um, it's used to portray the elite in Israel who are consistently exploiting the poor in Israel. And so this, it's this idea of exploitation and consuming them. See, the point here is that the fool's wickedness, it's not just contained to himself. The fool's wickedness has effects on other people. Yes, on those, the fools around him, but also on God's people. And we see this even today, right? We often see it in the form of persecution. I did a little bit of research to kind of get an understanding of maybe a fuller picture of what persecution looks like in our world today. And here are some things that I found. Um, In North Korea, where it's illegal to be a Christian, it's estimated that there are close to 50 to 70,000 Christians in prison at this time. In Afghanistan, Christians must either flee the country or be killed if they're found out. In China, Christian leaders are sometimes abducted from their homes, re-educated, and then placed under house arrest. So we see even now in our world today, foolishness leads to the exploitation of God's people. Persecution is real and is happening, and that's what the psalmist is getting at. God's people are oppressed by the wicked fool. And we see lastly, somewhat of a refrain in this psalm, a theme that kind of dictates uh, who the fool is. We see at the end of verse 1, there is none who does good. And then we see it again in verse 3, there is none who does good, not even one. The psalmist is saying that no matter where you look, you will never find a good fool. You will never find a righteous fool. The psalmist is communicating that the fool stands in complete opposition to everything that is good, everything that God loves. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we consider who the fool is and what he is like, we have to ask ourselves, am I like this fool? Is there anything about myself that I see in this description in Psalm 53? Do you live as though God doesn't exist? And this may look um, different to different people. Perhaps you view your hard-earned dollars as simply that, dollars that you worked hard to earn that are not a gift from God or that aren't still owned by God who is the giver of all good gifts. Do you try to control and manipulate situations so that they turn out the way you want them to? Rather than realizing that God is sovereign over all things and he is working all things together for his glory and for the good of those who love him. Are you like me in that you fail to call upon the Lord, to seek him, 
and instead rely on your intellect and will to make it through difficult situations? Or is there any area of your life where you're simply defying God? You know that God has prescribed a particular way of living, and when you hear that and when you see that, you say, you know what, God, I'm not interested. Sure, I'll do this and this. I'll come to church. I'll give. I'll do all these things. But this area of my life, I refuse to give it to you. See, friend, whether or not you care about God, whether or not you live as though he exists, God will respond to the fool. God does care about how you live. And rather than merely pitying the fool, we see that God rejects the fool. And that's our next point. God rejects the fool. And we see this happen in a two-step process. The first step happens in verse, uh, the beginning of verse 5. The psalmist says, There they are, there the fools are, in great terror, where there is no terror. See, the psalmist is indicating that for the fool, it may seem as though that there's no reason for fear. There's no reason for terror. But suddenly, great terror descends on the fool. You know, we've seen examples of this throughout the scriptures. Think about um, the flood. When God looks down on man and everyone is doing evil continuously, and seemingly out of nowhere, the flood comes and and God judges the earth through the flood. We see this um, with Sodom and Gomorrah, where you have uh, wickedness all throughout the city. God looks down and doesn't see a righteous person and suddenly judges the city through fire and brimstone. We see this in Egypt, where although Moses warned Pharaoh of the, the, um, the upcoming plagues, um, they're taken by surprise when God judges them through the ten plagues. And we see this will continue to be true because Christ himself will come back to judge. Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. So those who saw no need for terror, no need for fear, will all of a sudden be fearful when Christ returns to judge. So we see that God brings terror upon the fool but he also rejects the fool. And that we see that in the next part of verse 5. It says, For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. So God scatters the bones of the wicked. What does that mean? Well, in some ways, uh, we can almost think of it as a reversal of the picture we see in Ezekiel of the Valley of Dry Bones. So if you're familiar with that story, Um, The prophet Ezekiel has this vision of this valley of dry bones, uh, which represents spiritual death. It's just, this is what Israel was like, spiritually dead, and it's represented by dead, dry bones. But in Ezekiel's vision, God gives life to the bones. So Ezekiel sees them coming together. He sees flesh come upon the body, forming, uh, forming a living being, representing that God will make spiritually dead people alive. But here in Psalm 53, we get the reversal of that. Rather than dry bones coming alive, it's alive bones being scattered. It's a pretty pretty gruesome picture, but it's representative of the spiritual death that will come upon those who live as though there is no God. 
The fool who rejects God, we see, will be rejected by God on the day of judgment. God has rejected them. So friend, if you identify with the fool in this passage, this is the fate of the fool. God rejects those who live wicked, foolish lives. And while God is a patient, long-suffering God, he will not hold his judgment back forever. The important thing about this text is regardless of whether or not you identify with the fool in this passage, we each and every one of us gets a glimpse of ourselves as we read Psalm 53. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because Paul actually uses this passage in the book of Romans to um, remind us that there is none who does good. So let's turn and look there. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 9. Paul gives us a fuller understanding of what the psalmist is communicating in Psalm 53. See, in Romans 3, Paul is, um, he is laying out an argument that shows that both the Gentiles and the Jews are under God's condemnation, that all have sinned, and he says this in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and listen carefully, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No one does good. Not even one. See, when we look at Psalm 53 and then we look at Romans 3, we see that Psalm 53 isn't just about the fool out there somewhere. The person we look at and say, oh, that, person is, that person's life is messed up. They're clearly a person standing against God. It's, just, it's not just about that person. Psalm 53 is about our own heart because our fate is the same as the fool. See, in our sin, God rejects us. All of us, each and every one of us has sinned. We see that later in Romans 3. Look at Romans 3 verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us will be rejected by God because we have gone against God. God will not tolerate our sinfulness. But there's good news. The story doesn't end there, right? There is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue to read in Romans verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See, God put forward Jesus Christ on the cross to satisfy his wrath on our sin. We deserve the punishment and Christ took it for us so that we won't be rejected eternally like the fool is. All who turn away from sin and trust in Christ are no longer rejected. All who turn away from sin and trust in Christ are accepted in Christ by the Father. Let that sink in. 
For those who maybe struggle with that feeling of acceptance, know that your acceptance is not in what you have done. Your acceptance is in the perfection of Jesus Christ. And now when God looks at you, he doesn't see, uh, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees a saint who is being made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the good news is, rather than fully identifying with the fool in Psalm 53, through Christ, we can identify with God's people. But you might be wondering, last time we checked in with God's people, they were under oppression, right? It doesn't sound like it's a great thing to identify with the people of God in Psalm 53. Well, that's a great point, but our psalm doesn't end there. We see a note of hope at the end, and that leads us to our last point. God restores the faithful. You see, God rejects the fool, and God restores the faithful. The psalmist concludes with a prayer that God would rescue and restore his people from the oppression of the wicked. And the great thing about this prayer, you see in verse 6, there's not a question whether or not it will happen. Look at verse 6. It says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortune of his people. This isn't if God restores the fortunes of his people. It's when God does it. There's a certain hope that God will rescue his oppressed people. God will rescue, God will judge wickedness, and he will restore his faithful people and rescue them from oppression. But what kind of oppression? What does it look like for God to restore the fortunes of his people? Well, here's a a few different ways. These probably aren't the only ways, but here are a few examples of how God will restore his people. We already talked a little bit about persecution. Those who are exploited because of their faith in Christ can rest knowing that God will bring restoration. See, when we read the scriptures, we know that justice will be served. While it may seem like wrong is winning out for a time, God will make all things right. We see that God rejects the persecuting fool and restores his faithful people. We also see that God restores people from the oppression of something like racism. Let's say you're here and you've been exploited because of the color of your skin. You've experienced hatred in that way. You are, you are being restored right now and will be restored on the day when God makes all things new. Justice will be served for God's faithful people. God will reject the fool and he will restore the faithful. Another way God does this is through Um, He restores those who are abused. Perhaps you're here and you've been exploited by an abuser in some way, whether that's um, uh, emotionally or verbally or sexually, however it's been. There is hope for those who are abused in that God is restoring them and will restore when Jesus returns. See, there will be justice for those who have been abused. God will reject the fool and he will restore the faithful. See, God, um, we have hope that God will restore his people. So what does that mean for us? How must we respond knowing that God rejects the fool and restores the faithful? Well, I see two ways we can respond. 
The first is hope. As I mentioned before, verse 6 doesn't say if God restores the fortunes of his people. It says when God restores the fortunes of his people. Restoration will come for the people of God. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Christ is risen from the dead. The greatest assault on God and his people was when Satan thought he had defeated God through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But when Christ rose again from the dead, we now know for sure that all evil and all wickedness will be put to rest one day. Our hope is not in, maybe things will, maybe my circumstances will get better in the here and now. Our hope is that Jesus has risen from the dead, and so I know my sin is defeated, and my greatest enemy in death has been destroyed. Because Christ is risen, we have hope that God will make every broken thing whole in our life. So we respond with hope, but we also respond with joy. The last line of the psalm says, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The psalmist is saying, let's, let, let's, let God's people rejoice. We, of all people, have most reason to be joyful. Our sin is taken care of, death has no claim on us, and God is restoring us. Whether it feels like it or not, God is making broken things whole. <clears throat> so I encourage you to meditate on God's restoring act in your life and allow that joy to overflow in your heart. Brothers and sisters, God rejects the fool, but he does restore the faithful people of which we are a part of. And by his grace, may he fill our hearts with hope and with joy. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. Lord, we are grateful that you restore your faithful people. Lord, we are grateful that through Christ you have made us faithful, um, and we thank you um, that you are making broken things whole and that you are making all things new. Father, we love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.